You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospay. Hello, welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast hosted by Nori. We're a blockchain-based carbon removal marketplace. Now, this is our fifth episode. We're here in Phoenix, actually in Tempe, Arizona. It's the alma mater of all of us, actually, weirdly enough. I didn't really expect to come back to Arizona too often as a professional. I live in Los Angeles now. But I feel like I keep getting brought back here because Phoenix seems to have a lot of cool stuff happening. So I'm here with Christoph and some guests here on the ASU main campus. And uh, Christoph, why don't you introduce them? Yeah, right when I got out, they pulled me back in. (laughs) Small technicality. I I was a Sun Devil. I was on the Sun Devil payroll, but I never technically went here. Oh, Had the pleasure of working at the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions, which is part of the Sustainability School, which is a large umbrella. And I know it's an umbrella that also encompasses the School for Future Innovation in Society. Hopefully I got that right. It's great to be back in Phoenix. Seattle's gray. Arizona's not great. <laughs> no. Yeah, Seattle, it's, Seattle, I understand why snowbirds come here. You get it now? Yeah, I got it because we were walking on the pathway and I just stopped to take in some sun. And that's something I can't do in Seattle. That's like our version of small chat here in uh, in Arizona where you can just be like, ah, oh, snowbirds. I was behind a snowbird for like 20 <laughs> minutes today and everyone's like, yeah, I understand. I feel you. Or we also say it's a dry heat. That's mm-hmm. the other thing that people say just to make it small it's just talk. A dry heat. It's just a dry heat and there's snowbirds and that's most of your day of chatter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Well, today is a very special episode because it's the first time we have brought on two guests. And without further ado, let's throw them into the gauntlet here. Let's so to my left, we've got Jane Flagel, like bagel. <laughs> You're going to practice like that bagel. like 10 times, yep. man. <laughs> Wanted to make sure that I got it right. Flagel. Anxious delivery. Um, <laughs> so as I contacted some of my other ASU colleagues before I came on, they said, oh, you know, geoengineering Jane is oh, speaking no. on Tuesday. So no. are you the geoengineering I, Jane? No. Okay. So. Actually, there are two of us. Oh. There are a, a large number of Janes in the geoengineering world. I go by Jane Jr., Jane 2. There's Jane Long, who's a senior scientist. And then there's me, Jane Jr. Oh, so she's geoengineering. She, I, would, I will submit that she is geoengineering. Okay. And how many sulfates do you want to emit into the atmosphere? Uh, small amount, bathtubs worth, bathtubs initially, worth. scaling up rapidly. Okay. <laughs> it's sulfates, right? Depends. You know, we're, depends. We're, not go- we're not going there. I'm today. like on the right track, though. I've been learning about this, <laughs> yes. but it's new. Yeah, it's like we, a volcano. We could go there. I we're really like definitions, so I'd like to define it later. But before we do that, let's let... Andrew Maynard, welcome. Thank you. And we're sitting in your office. You are. So maybe we could start giving both of you the chance to introduce yourself. What do you do? What do you think about? Why are you on the Reversing Climate Change podcast anyway? I have no idea. <laughs> Jane, how I can, you? I can you start. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's true. So I'm a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley, actually, in the Department of Environmental Science Policy and Management. But I'm visiting this semester, which is, I can't believe, almost over, at the School for the Future of Innovation and Society. And before I started my PhD, I worked for a few years in Washington, D.C. at a think tank called the Bipartisan Policy Center, where I worked mostly on energy energy issues kind of widely, but most of my work focused on energy innovation. And some small, very small chunk of that 
portfolio was devoted to looking at geoengineering, which we can define in a moment. But in the context of my work at the Bipartisan Policy Center, that term encompassed both research into ideas to increase the reflectivity of the planet through a range of techniques and also attempts to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the kind of negative emissions technologies. And mm, since so that thing's carbon removal. That right? thing is many things. And the carbon other... removal, carbon dioxide removal, negative emissions technologies. Mm. And the All first thing you said is Solar, SRM? Well, you know, there's a lot of politics around that as well. It's the National Academies, which put out reports on both sets of techniques termed the whole category, not geoengineering, but climate intervention, because they didn't like the way that engineering implied a sense of controllability that might be unrealistic. And then that report called the solar radiation management or solar geoengineering techniques, which are about increasing reflectivity, albedo modification. Mm. Albedo. Albedo. Is this like a Freudian term? No. <laughs> no. What? Close. What's an albedo? Albedo. What is, how would you define albedo? You're putting me on the spot. I'm putting here. you on the spot. So, so albedo is effectively the propensity of something to reflect to reflect light. light back. Yeah. Yes, it's so, a little bit like Greek. What is it? Is it a Greek word? Oh, this is way too deep for you guys. Etymology. Failed my qualifier. Well, think about mm-hmm. painting roofs white. Yes. And so, if you paint a roof white, then if it used to be black. If it were black, it would absorb a lot of the heat and require you to spend a lot more on your cooling bill. You're saying it's like Santorini and it is Greek. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, right. It is Greek, exactly. <laughs> oh, so the okay. albedo modification was developed in Santorini. No. <laughs> where everything is white. Fake they news, man. Out... Fake news. <laughs> but there are also ideas that are perceived to be a little more large scale than white roofs. So things like mimicking the effects of a volcano. So after a large volcano, eruptions, which put aerosols into the stratosphere, those aerosols basically act as kind of a shield around the earth and block some of the incoming sunlight. So you do see global cooling in response to volcanic eruptions. And that's sort of where the aerosol injection, the sulfates that you mentioned earlier comes from. I know this is quite controversial because some people like they don't like the term geoengineering because it sounds like we've already ruined this planet. Like you think you can like control this and then the same thing gets ported over to terraforming Mars or other things. They're just like you guys are like, this is all hubristic exercise. Is it not? Is this part of the criticism of geoengineering? I think so. And there's all sorts of interesting definitional politics around the use of the term geoengineering. And and Andrew can say more about the hubristic claims, probably. But one thing that I found interesting in the years that I've been working on geoengineering is this ongoing debate that has yet to be resolved around the kind of lumping and splitting of technologies under the rubric of geoengineering. So if I'm interested in a technique that would kind of conventionally fall under the term geoengineering, but I think it's not actually that risky, or I'm trying to make it seem less risky, I don't want to be in the same category as something that I have a sense that the general public is going to perceive as quite scary, like blocking the sun. So you've seen big debates about should negative emissions technologies or carbon removal technologies even be considered in the same breath as the albedo modification. But but you asked about this scary technology of geoengineering. Mm -hmm. I'm actually not that convinced that people are scared about it. And I, Jane, I don't know whether there's been any recent public polling on on attitudes, but my sense Mm -hmm. is that this is a little bit like inside baseball. So people Mm -hmm. that are really invested in either geoengineering or being anti-geoengineering have this assumption 
assumption that everybody else is also equally invested in it. Most people either don't know about it or don't care about it. Yeah. Is it like you already agree on like 80 or 90 or even more of the percent, but then like the fights become so intense because it's just like this, like the name is really important for some reason, well, not I, the I, substance. I think, so actually, I think within the community, there are some big fights here, yeah. ideological fights about what you do. Do you start tinkering even more with the planet or do you try and stop tinkering? But it really is a small group of experts. Mm -hmm. And if you go out onto the streets of Tempe and ask people, what do you think of engineering? They'll look at you as if you're from Mars or something. Mm -hmm. Is that the name of like a shot or a beer bottle? Right, or yeah. Or yeah. <laughs> well, most of, the, most yeah. of the empirical social science, the public opinion polling on geoengineering finds insanely low levels of familiarity with the term geoengineering in the order of less than 10%, closer to yeah. single digit percentages of public awareness. And they find that if you're trying to get, you know, elicit a response from the public to something they know nothing about, surprise, surprise, it's all in how you frame it, right? Oh, so. sure. Is it fair to say, like, this might be totally unfair, but I have friends who went to the sustainability college and they tend to be like a little more on the hippie side. And the idea of like interfering more is just like a total non-starter. Like they would just be like, no. Oh, yeah. I'm like a techno optimist too. Like I think humans solve problems. We're good at it. We're going to solve more in the future. Is that kind so, of- So I have to be a, a little careful because a lot of this is anecdotal, but certainly people come with their own ideologies and beliefs to this. So if your ideology is there are already too many people doing too much stuff on this planet, the solution to that is not, hey, let's bring more technologies in. It's let's stop people doing what they're doing. So of course, you're not going to be that excited about geoengineering. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess if you have those priors, like why would you double down on those? Like, right. Yeah, right. But there's all these concerns about the level of sort of what does the general public think about these ideas? And then there's the question of how are these sets of ideas being addressed at the level of policymaking? And we can have an interesting conversation, I think, about the role and politics of negative emissions in particular in the context of international and domestic climate policy. In the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change sets of reports that tried to model what kinds of mixed of technologies might be able to achieve the temperature targets that were agreed to under the Paris Agreement. So keeping global average temperatures below two degrees from pre-industrial levels. Almost all of those scenarios include the assumption that we'll be deploying a bunch of negative emissions technologies, which really don't yet exist, at least at the scale at which they're you know assumed to exist. So there's some degree of kind of magical thinking happening. And whether that's intentional on the part part of policymakers, I would suggest that it's not, but it does suggest that there's a lack of awareness at the policymaking level around the need for negative emissions, at least under these modeled scenarios. Did you say a lack of awareness with policymakers? Did you? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Well, uh, this is such a weird thing. I mean, I thought these people were gods. Yeah. So, <laughs> All so, of us, yeah. so Jane, you, you opened the door. Let's walk through oh, it. Great. Are you saying that people agreed to commitments and they had no idea how to solve these things they agreed to. <laughs> Sounds pretty risky, doesn't it? <laughs> it does sound risky, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that there are different ways to interpret the kind of political process that happens at the UN agreements on climate change, right? And so an expression of an aspiration to achieve a two-degree temperature target can be read as just an aspirational goal and not a very specific prescription about technological pathways. And so some people will make that argument. But I do think that there's a real problem here in that if we are going to assume at the high levels of international climate policy that these 
targets are achievable using technologies that are essentially imaginary at this point, then that suggests to me that policymakers either need to be quite seriously investing in modes of inquiry into those technologies or take them out of the scenarios altogether. So I would add to that. So this is not unusual, setting policies that force technology. You mm -hmm. say, this is where we'd like to be. We don't know how we're going to get there. But by setting the levels or whatever, we're going to encourage people to come up with the technological fixes. The challenge, as, as Jane says, is you've got to have a good idea of what is plausible. And you've got to put the mechanisms in place to actually help people get to those technological capabilities. Mm -hmm. What is plausible at this point? Because I get really into like direct air capture is really cool to me. But I know it's like kind of nascent and like pretty early days, right? Right. And just for our listeners who may not even know what direct air uh, capture is. very responsible over here. <laughs> Look at this guy. Right. I'm coming from the academic who's trying to use big words, but I want to keep this for the please, people, Ross. Please, please do it. Ross Populi seeds the floor. Direct air capture. You can think of it like an artificial tree that is directly extracting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, upgrading that stream, and then using that stream to permanently sequester it. It's all theoretical. You have some demonstration plants. There's an interesting demonstration plant that we actually talked about with our last episode up in like Iceland. The, oh, the mineralization? Yep. Like, oh, yeah, that's very yeah. cool. Yeah. Putting it into rocks, it stores it there permanently, or you hope permanently. Mm -hmm. But let's also not throw trees under the bus. Isn't large-scale tree planting a form of <laughs> geoengineering? Well, you hit on something really interesting that relates to the discussion we just had about how the way that you frame these imaginary technologies affects how people perceive them. Because in a lot of the social science research on negative emissions technologies, the people have found that if you frame technologies as like a tree or as something natural, people tend to be more willing to accept it than if you describe it as something that's more artificial, which is a really interesting finding, I think, perhaps not surprising. On the afforestation question, on this idea of planting more trees as a technique to reduce carbon, I don't know, Andrew, do you have any? I don't have any sense of how people feel about it. So there are bigger problems with trees, though, and it all comes down to land use. Yeah. And, and how do you make that decision where you've got a set amount of land and you've got to grow crops, you've got to build buildings, you've got to put industrial facilities on, you've got to grow trees? How do you decide? what you're going to do with it. Isn't it like if we were to even like cut emissions to nothing or even start reversing it, like all the arable land of Earth would have to be trees or something crazy like that? I mean, I think for a lot of these approaches, there is a tendency for people to want to describe certain techniques for doing negative emissions as softer than others. So the stuff that feels more natural, like planting a lot of trees or bioenergy with carbon capture feels more natural. But I think for a lot of this stuff, the question is really scale. So exactly what you're getting at, you know, if you were to do these things that feel okay in a particular place at a particular time to have a meaningful impact on climate in the way that we might expect or hope, they could have quite significant, not just technical challenges, but social, political, cultural challenges as well. Yeah, I was scolded kind of you know, moderately severely by producer Paul over here the other day. <laughs> Sometimes forget, I think the average person doesn't really know that even if we did cut emissions entirely, we're still way over the amount of carbon in the atmosphere to even deal with this. And like, I know like, the modeling shows that there is some like lagging. We haven't seen the full rate of rise, mm -hmm. right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's coming at some point, but it just hasn't taken place. But we have to like start pulling it out now. So it isn't just like we can't just do what we've always done. It's we need technology to solve this problem or it's coming. Is that correct? 
it sounds right now like you're proselytizing about solar geoengineering because uh, this is actually one of the reasons some of the scientists don't, are interested. Don't put words in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Ross, you're going to get scolded after this episode. Yeah. <laughs> politics, by the way, you sound like this. <laughs> but it is kind of true, this sort of, again, like not to suggest that all policymakers are ignorant, but there is, I think, across even like a lot of the experts in the climate space, a lack of understanding of the kind of inertia in the climate system that you're describing, right? That even if you stopped emissions today, we would still be committed to some degree of warming and therefore some climate risk. And that's part of the reason why things like negative emissions and perhaps solar geoengineering might be things that we want to keep on the table. What is solar uh, geoengineering? This isn't like you put up like a satellite that blocks the sun. Is this snow, snow piercer? Is that what we're doing? <laughs> I think where's like albedo coming again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just the idea that you could enhance the reflectivity of the planet essentially to cool the planet rapidly. And there's a bunch of ideas. The one that's treated as sometimes the most promising is the idea of basically mimicking a volcano, like putting some aerosols in the stratosphere. But there's all sorts of things. Yeah, like space mirrors and white roofs and all kinds of things like that. But one of the points I think is that while some people who work on negative emissions technologies really don't want to be included in the geoengineering conversation, as soon as you frame it as about solving the climate problem, you start to recognize that you none of these things really make sense without each other, that you need a kind of portfolio of responses to climate risk. So I think the challenge is, I mean, you look at the problem. The problem has got three dimensions. We've got lots of sun coming in. We've got lots of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that help capture that sunlight. And we've got people doing stuff that exacerbates the problem. So if you're going to address the problem, you've got to either reduce the amount of sunlight hitting the earth, you've got to reduce the number of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, or you've got to change people's behaviors. And certainly from somebody like me, who looks at how you think of risk on a systemic level, you've got to look at all three parts of the problem to work out how to get forwards. Yeah, if you just reflected the sunlight, isn't like ocean acidity isn't going down at that point, right? Oh it's, boy, right. now you're really getting into it. <laughs> I learned my stuff. Are you proud of me, Christoph? I feel like I'm dropping some I knowledge say, over here. Ross, to... Ross did his homework. He tries to come across like he didn't do his homework. <laughs> do but, this, but I do you know, well, just Training to... ignorance. Actually, this question of the potential impact of solar geoengineering on the carbon cycle is not totally clear. As some scientists have recently argued that, you know, it certainly wouldn't address ocean acidification in a direct way, but that there might be kind of feedback effects associated with solar geoengineering that could but positively... That's a, but that's a long cycle, isn't it? Oh, yeah. If you look at the dissolution of carbon dioxide in the oceans, it takes a long time for it to get there. It takes a long time for it to come out as well. So we've got a real challenge there. But it's there long enough to kill the coral reefs. That's right. It's very yes. good at that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which seemed to be important for some people. Uh, actually, not only the coral reefs, there's a lot of stuff that's important that's mm -hmm. being messed up at the moment. Mm -hmm. So can we geoengineer our oceans as well? People are talking about it, yes. But that also raises the question. So you've got oceans, which are incredibly complex, but also one of the powerhouses of how our climate works. So as soon as you start messing around with those oceans, we're not quite sure what's going to happen. Now, the question is, is the problem we're already facing so big that there's not much else we can do that's going to be worse than what we've already done? And that's a huge open-ended question at the moment. But we could start using uh, aquaculture and growing seaweed and, dare I say, say nori 
What, what, if, what if we had floating cities what in the ocean? Floating cities, yeah. That's always a good idea. Definitely, yeah. Well, well, this is also interesting to me because, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the climate debate about taboos around particular kinds of strategies. So initially, adaptation was really perceived as being taboo. Like something, what's, what's that? the notion that because of what we just described and because of the fact that we're committed to some climate changes, no matter what we do at the moment, significant investment should go into adapting to the changes that are likely to come. So this includes things like planning for potential future sea level rise in some cities or, you know, investing in smart ways to do agriculture in the context of future climate change. But for a long time, especially in the sort of mainstream policy debate around climate change, adaptation was like, don't talk about it. I feel like you would want that insurance policy on the table, though. Well, but you? for a lot of people, it was perceived as a resignation. Like, ugh, that's an admission that we can't really address climate in a way that feels good because we're and, intervening. And, and again, you get back to the ideologies. And so there is something that really worries me here, and that is who decides which is the right ideology. And effectively, what we've got is we've got a really small number of people who are deciding what is right for seven and a half billion people around the planet. Is this IPCC? I not know mm. when you're talking about the ideology of what we do and don't do or what we do talk about and what we don't talk about. I don't think it's people or groups like the IPCC. Mm-hmm. It's academics and uh-huh. activists in this area who have decided that this is how we should be going forward because this is the right ideology. Can we refer to them as the geoengineering Illuminati? Which I'm probably part of. So, <laughs> <laughs> so like people don't like carbon negative processes because it feels like, oh, people are just going to burn fossil fuels because they can buy absolution, you know, they can buy an indulgence. Uh, So so this is the argument. And again, I think it's something of an intellectual argument. Yes, it it goes along the lines of as soon as you give somebody the option of getting rid of their pollution, they're just going to pollute more because they know that there's a solution there for it. And we see this sort of economics happen elsewhere. The more opportunities you give people to sort of offset what they do, the more of the, the thing which is harmful they tend to do. So certainly that's there, but I'm not sure that it's a good excuse not to even mm-hmm. talk about something or not to consider different options. Mm-hmm. So let me give you an analogy. It's a medical analogy. I mean, if you're trying to do things like address heart disease, the last thing you do is say, we're not going to allow anybody to have any heart bypass surgery because as soon as we offer that, people are going to have bad lifestyle habits. It's not an option. Yeah, the argument for moral hazard there seems kind of stupid. <laughs> right, yeah. right. But we're tending to do the same thing, I think, when it comes to conversations around how we manage the climate. I would rather do that personally, though. Like, I want to live the same lifestyle I'm living now. Just what do I have to pay to, to do it? Like, I'm willing to just, it's my waste product. I'll pay for it. Can't and, I just and, do that? And, and there you become part of the problem. This is why people don't have these conversations. How's that part of the problem, though? I feel like I'm, like, at least neutral. Well, this is one of the things about negative emissions that I don't think we have yet talked about, and perhaps because it's there's so little actually R&D happening in a serious way on some of this stuff. But the question of who's going to pay for it, who will pay for large investments that are going to be required to do negative emissions on a scale that will impact climate. I mean, there's a really thorny politics around those questions at the UNFCCC around who's responsible for climate change and who's responsible for paying to address it, how much development should be allowed that's dirty and, and, you know, these kinds of questions. And I think it'll be interesting to look at how the negative emissions debate intersects with that sort of ongoing political conversation. It's like you can't just tell China and India, you can't just be like, nope, you got to stay where you're at or just like put in solar panels and you're dooming tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people to poverty that way. That doesn't seem totally fair either. Is that is that what you're talking about? It might even be in the three commas club. (laughs) Three commas. Yeah. Is that what the problem is there? 
I mean, I think that there are a lot of problems here and there are people like we should be fair that there are a lot of people would argue that this question of energy access in the developing world can be addressed without negative emissions technologies. Like there are people who will make those claims that we can just do 100% renewables. So, so let me ask stuff. you this. And I, again, as somebody that sort of is a bit of a dilettante and wanders around this area, but isn't deeply embedded in it. Who are these people who think that they there have are, the right to tell others what they should be doing? You're getting spicy in <laughs> I mean, it happens in a lot of domains and it's happened in the energy and climate space for a long time. I mean, I think there are a number of environmental NGOs and foundations and academics who truly believe that we can do this all. In my view, the question is one of risk management, in which case, like, you really want to diversify your portfolio. Because even if you believe that 100% renewables is possible, which it may be, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There are going to be costs. There are risks that it won't work the way you think it will. That would suggest that in light of the risks that we face, you should invest in a wide range of approaches. Right. Because practically, it, it takes time. If I am building a coal-fired power plant without any kind of carbon capture affixed to it, I intend for that coal-fired power plant to be there for 50 years. And it would be foolish for me to turn it off before it's run its life and I don't get my money back. And so I just don't think that we'll be able to decarbonize as quickly as people think we will. And without the ability to pull carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere, we cannot get there. Mm -hmm. Yet these carbon removers don't seem to be invited to the party. <laughs> Why not? Oh, are you low? Are you well, I, 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 I am a used carbon salesman. And if they're not going to let me show up, I'm going to be. What party, what party do you really want to be at? Well, we're making our own party from a Nori perspective. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're trying to say if you feel so inclined to pay to negate your carbon emissions and find this a useful instrument and would like to ensure that all of the money you're paying is actually going to the entity that's removing carbon. Let me give a very real example. Farmers actually can remove a lot of carbon in their soils. Sometimes they get as little as 20% of that actual project. It goes through so many middlemen. You mean like the auditors take yeah, it and like the salespeople? Wow. The lawyers too. 80% goes to those people? Yeah. Mm. Right. We're going to change that. Okay. And so, so we're going to create cutting a, new out the yep. a new voluntary yep. mechanism for people who feel so inclined to at least get it going. So let me ask you a question. We've talked a lot about a top-down approach. You've got the Illuminati, you've got the, the international bodies. you got to clarify I, that statement. Yeah. Man. Put it out of context, don't you? I, people get the context. I, so so you, you've got this sort of small body of experts deciding what is right and debating amongst themselves. And getting it wrong, right. by the way. Okay, right. So, And some people think getting it wrong. But your approach seems to be, okay, let them have their discussions. We're actually going to do something rather than talk about it. What are the hurdles from your perspective? Yeah. Sure you can just do this. If you've got a market there, why not just do it? There are a lot of hurdles. But as crazy young people, we see challenges as just opportunities to right. jump over. One of the first hurdles is trust. Do we know what we're talking about? And do we have a way to verify that these things that we say are removing carbon are actually happening? Okay. We think we know what we're talking about. And we certainly look forward to learning more so we can talk about it. Part of what we're doing on this podcast. Right. Can we be sure that it's removing carbon? Yes, we think so. We're working with some very smart people who have some fancy ways of measuring that. And then when we make this party, are people going to come up and play and show up to our party? Right. And that is a big question. So, as so, this... But then so your value proposition, is it 
simply the value proposition of people having an opportunity to do what they think is the right thing? Or is there actually money on the table here? Well, yeah, there is money on the table. You could always buy these tokens very early in the process. I don't know what the going rate of removing carbon is right now. It's probably three digits, right? Mm-hmm. Is it high three digits? I think Climeworks is like $600 or something like for the last time I checked. Well, also just to kind of pull you out of the All right, pull me out of the, the rabbit hole you're going right, down right. because you should know how much it costs. Uh-huh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it all depends, right? Planting a tree is pretty inexpensive and we're by no means excluding tree planting right. within what we're setting up. So there's a range of costs and then there's also a cost curve on new technologies that someone needs to subsidize. And indeed, Climeworks, which you mentioned, is quite expensive today. And as they continue to learn by doing, they'll come down in the future hopefully below the social cost of carbon. And we defined that already, I think, last time. But let's define it again. Social cost of carbon is essentially the dollars per ton that an additional ton of carbon dioxide will cause in damage based on certain modeling. Right. Anyway, just to get back to your question, I think we have to start with the cheap and doable stuff. And I will say publicly, our approach is to work with the natural engineered solutions. Right. And doing so actually creates a new perception of risk where you can create a number of co-benefits that come along with sequestering carbon. So let's pick on our soil friends. By sequestering carbon in soil, you retain way more water. You don't require fertilizer, which leads to no runoff. And by retaining more water, you're more drought resistant. So in sunny places like Arizona, where it gets super dry, your crops might last just a little bit longer. So you've got added value there. Yeah. Yep. But it seems from what you're saying, you're largely technology agnostic. So your value proposition is multiple ways of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And Um, ruthlessly competing amongst each other to bring the cost down. Right, right, right. But if a different technology comes along that looks viable, looks trustworthy, you're just as likely to support that as you are looking at the agricultural. Exactly. We play no favorites and we are going to succeed in bringing the geoengineers with the farmers together (laughs) and convince the farmers that they are doing a form of carbon geoengineering. So what is going to stop you doing this? This is fascinating to me returning it back to you because this is what I do thinking about risk. What are the really big hurdles in your mind that you need to work out how to get over? Okay, yeah, I think we're probably going to end up focusing a lot more on hardware and like catching the IoT side of things okay. up, the internet of things. Excuse thing. me, IoT? <laughs> I, are you, I'm here to represent <laughs> the people. Yeah, we, lo- we love Elon Musk's uh, like little note about how acronyms ruin the workplace. So we always like calling those out. Yeah, internet of things. So basically like smart devices that can give you very dynamic feedback very quickly. And so you can tell like how much carbon is soil actually storing, how much carbon is being pulled out of a flu of a smokestack stuff like that. But for a lot of what we're doing, I think the hardware is like not quite there yet. But we're, we're talking to people who are working on that problem. And I suspect we'll probably end up deeper involved in that. Okay. So like, I think we were like kind of like a financial services kind of because we're like, yeah. we're building this marketplace, but I think we're going to end up in hardware so, too. So how about public perception? I mean, we've yeah. talked a bit about it. Is that something that really keeps you awake at night? No, I thought that sounds awesome. I, I think I think it's going to be great on <laughs> well, that. Yeah. About, I mean, if you can look at, especially if you're talking about things like afforestation or soil carbon or whatever, you can look at 
historical cases where attempts have been made to establish carbon markets or incentivize biofuels, for example, that on the face look like a bunch of really quite technical decisions about how you account for this and that, but have been extremely controversial, especially in the developing world and around things like indirect land use change and how and whether to quantify that. And so that strikes me as a place where there might actually be a lot of controversy. How are you actually verifying this? Who stands to benefit actually where these projects are occurring and who stands to benefit or lose in those places? And We should talk about Alden too and like her experience working with carbon markets because conventional carbon markets have had a rough go of things, haven't they? Like many of them have collapsed over yeah. the years. Yeah. And so we have like, well, why don't you introduce her and what, what she's up to? Yeah, well, this is a special treat for our listeners because we'll bring her on later. Oh, are we going to actually interview her? We should. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah we definitely Absolutely. should. Yeah. Needless to say, okay, so Alden Donnelly is one of our team members. We're actually going to publish a profile of her, which should be done before this podcast is up. So we can put that in the show notes. She is one of the people who was sitting at the table in Kyoto. And so she helped devise some of the carbon markets back in 1997, and then went on to broker some major transactions and has done some work with soil and understands some of the nuances much better than everyone else on our team. Was that what you wanted me to say? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, those are all reasonable concerns, too. And we want to make sure that, like, Nori's a triangle, basically. You have, like, buyers, sellers, and and verifiers on here. And I think, is it fair to say that the verifiers is probably the weakest part of the tripod so far? Oh, producer Paul's leaning in. He's got something to say. Take the mic. The verifiers are the, that's the difficult part. That's the technical challenge that we're facing here. And so in figuring out how to actually incentivize the verifiers to do what they're doing, how to pay them without introducing possibilities of collusion mm -hmm. with the people who are doing the carbon removal. And so we're working on different ways of management and it's more of like an economics problem for us to solve. And, but in other domains where you've had like non-certification schemes for fisheries or whatever, you end up with these sort of like certifiers of the certifiers who are doing the certification. <laughs> right. We came across one paper recently that suggested that one possible way to do this sort of thing is you have two potential rounds of verification. So you have one verifier who comes in and, and that, that's always going to happen. And then there is a known probability that there will be a second verifier coming in, say it's 70% chance, but it's just a random number. Mm -hmm. We don't know if the second verifier is actually going to be called upon. And so that's enough of a disincentive against collusion that if the second verifier comes in and they find some evidence of collusion with the carbon remover, then we reward the second verifier and blacklist the first verifier. And so we're trying to design the game theory of that into our model so that it doesn't have to become this like never ending cycle of verifiers, mm -hmm. and, which really adds up the cost significantly. So we, we need to find a way to bring that cost down so that they're getting paid fairly, but not more than And not just about cost, but as Christoph said, like the sort of concern about trust in the verification. Process. So you describe this as a technical and economic challenge, but I think it's also a really tough political challenge to how do you build trust in in the process. Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of a big reason why we're doing this podcast right now so that we can talk about these things out in the open so that people are aware of the processes and the decision making that we're going through as we design this market. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'll say, we may not have it right at our first stab at this, but we sure as hell want to get it right. right. And we will do our damnedest to get the science right. Mm -hmm. And we will build the system in such a way that it can improve with the data that it gets. Right. That unlike the very cumbersome 
methodologies today will create something that can be consensus-based and crowdsourced and engage academics in a really meaningful way. Can I add one more thing, which is that we're building out this software platform so that we can take in the data from the carbon removers and, and make that available. So one thing that's important to us is that when we launch this marketplace, we're going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting to get the first sorts of different methodologies online so that we're getting this data in. So Chris often Ross have talked about soil carbon and afforestation and so on. But we want to make that open in a way so that if someone else wants to come and propose a new sort of methodology, that that could be something that we could consider and approve. So it's not just us picking favorites, mm -hmm. it's the market choosing it. Yep. So I've got to put my cards on the table here and say one of the things that fascinates me about this is that you're using the, the entrepreneurial mindset using lean type approaches which do not work with large-scale governance so this is actually what excites me and I, i'm actually <laughs> going to sort of say i'm actually quite excited with what i'm hearing here because if you have a top-down bureaucratic institution they totally lack agility when it comes to governance and i'm thinking about governance largely in terms of how do you do things that are going to protect what's important to us whereas if you take more of a bottom-up entrepreneurial approach, you can afford to try things out, maybe make mistakes, but actually adapt and move forward very, very fast. So I think that this now gives us another layer of opportunity to do interesting things. And what really fascinates me here is one of the things I'm working on at the moment is this concept of agile governance. How do you actually respond to emerging issues and challenges very fast, learn from your mistakes fast, and move forward fast? And increasingly, we're discovering that you've got to have these partnerships from people working at the very bottom all the way up through the hierarchies so you actually have a, a very responsive portfolio of how we can do things in novel and innovative ways. I think we're blushing after that. That was that was the best praise I think we've gotten on this yeah, thing. So, but you wow. still have plenty of challenges in front of you. No, 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 don't talk about that. Right, let's, let's leave it at what you said. We should always bring on more guests who can just continually yeah. praise. Yeah. yeah, we didn't even put those words in his mouth. We, we paid him a very small amount of money. Yeah. Who's verifying these claims? Is what I yeah. We're going to put some IoT on you later. For the rest of your life? Yes. Yeah. So agile governance, I love it. Can you give us a real example of what Sure, yeah. And in, in a financial Actually, so a couple of weeks ago, I was in Dubai with the World Economic Forum, where we were really sort of working on some of these concepts ahead of their big Davos meeting in January. And the idea there is very simply, if you look across the border, technology innovation, you've got a disconnect between what we can do with emerging technologies and how we can ensure that we don't make a complete mess of things and we actually see the benefits. And that is particularly relevant when it comes to climate change, because a lot of what we're seeing is driven by how we use technologies and how that intersects with what we as, as humans with all our, our weird ideas do with it. So in the climate change context, but also more broadly than that, we've got to find ways of actually responding fast to emerging challenges. And we've got to find ways of actually learning from what we do, because we're never going to do things right to start with, and adapt and find better ways of ensuring that we don't see excess risks come out of what we do. So the agility comes in being able to spot where the problems are emerging, put solutions in place, which are not necessarily the perfect solution, but solutions that we can learn from and adapt mm -hmm. and pivot and come up with better solutions very rapidly as we go the, forwards. There's also like a lot of academic writing lately, and Jack Stilgo actually has written about this in the context of governance of geoengineering experiments, like actual outdoor experiments, especially around blocking the sun, the notion of experimental governance, yes, which yes. sounds like it has shares some attributes with what you're describing. 
writing. Absolutely. So there are actually a couple of really important parts of this. One is that experimental idea or sandboxing, having the freedom to try new things out. But the other is this idea of inclusivity, because Mm -hmm. as soon as you're trying to come up with solutions which supposedly benefit society, you've got to work out who all the actors are that are going to be impacted by that. And they've got to have some part in the process. You can't leave it to an elite few to make decisions. A, because it doesn't work within a democratic society. And B, because if you do that, you're really going to annoy some people who are going to stop you doing what you're trying to do. So you've got to somehow engage with people who are going to be affected. Sounds like the best way to do that is with radical transparency. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure I would go quite that far, but you've got to be smart about it. And you've got to be able to work out how to give people the information they need to make smart decisions. And you've got to listen to them and be able to actually respond to what they're thinking and, and what they're saying. Radical transparency, I personally, I think is going way too far. And it's a very much abused idea. But certainly, you've got to be able to talk to people and listen to them and respond to them. You just got verbally spanked, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I did, or at least scolded. There's a lot of scolding <laughs> Yeah, I, you scolded me earlier. It's all coming around. Yeah. Well, and I want to suggest that this notion of inclusivity might actually be important for things like setting up the verification protocol. Yes. And so in, not, in just transparent, not just transparency, but developing the sort of criteria for what you're actually verifying and the process for verification might benefit from some wider stakeholder engagement. So not just sort of saying we're relying on the best science and we'll be transparent about it, but sort of engaging explicitly with the people who stand to benefit or lose or have feel like they have some stake in the protocol that you're setting up so that you can address the concerns that they have. And I think that this has been shown in again, certification schemes in forestry, for example, that the kind of early on sort of upstream engagement with stakeholders around even the sort of technical standard setting process can enhance the legitimacy of the certification scheme itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And one of the things from a, another industry that we're trying to bring into this is the way that open source software is developed is done in a very similar fashion. So we're envisioning publishing the rule sets around these methodologies and how the verification works on GitHub and letting people comment and inviting people to comment on it. And we modify these as we go on. And it'll be a continually evolving process. It's not like we're just going to issue a methodology and say that, okay, this is how it's always going to be from now on. We want to adapt to the different inputs that people are giving us. Mm -hmm. So, Andrew, you're a physicist. Yes. Which means you must think about a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) In a weird way, yes. (laughs) What else do you think about in the large physicist sort of umbrella that's relevant to the conversation we're having here? Goodness me. So I've got to qualify that. So yes, I used to be a bench physicist, but for many years now, I've expanded out into sort of being a a pseudo social scientist and thinking about sort of society and people and governance and how people's brains work and things. So from that context, the sorts of things I think about are part of my brain thinks, wow, cool, really interesting stuff. It's tech, it's different. It's a really cool way of solving a really complex problem. But then other parts of my brain kick in and say, this is a problem which is so complex, there are going to be no easy solutions. In fact, there are going to be no solutions. There are just going to be pathways which are slightly better muddling going forward. Muddling through. It's my- <laughs> muddling through, yes. Mm-hmm. But then I begin to think about sort of the broader complexity of this. So without a doubt, when you're looking at the confluence of the climate, of people, humanity, of technology, you've got a highly complex system. That means nonlinearities, which basically mean that we can't predict what's going to happen in the future from what happened in the past. We've got the possibility of catastrophic failure, and we really don't know what the trigger points there are going to be. So all of that tells me that we can't stand still, because if we stand still, bad things are going to happen. 
We've got to be really careful moving forward because we don't know what the consequences of our actions are going to be. And at the end of the day, thinking about everything from the technology to society to policy to decision making to a whole raft of things, we've got to work out how to spot small signals from early warnings so we can work out when things are going in a bad direction and we can change course very fast. So that's what my sort of strange physicist stroke policy stroke sort of social science brain tends to think about with things like this. Yeah, where's the physics? Uh, <laughs> I didn't see any of that. So, no, so, one needs no, no, no. Yeah. So, so the only way physics comes in is when you've done physics for a couple of decades or so, it completely rewires your brain. So you can't actually see things like a normal person. Are you like a, you're a Vulcan is what you're saying? <laughs> well, I, I, I hope not, but I'm something weird. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why you're at ASU. Yeah. Fit that, right in. That is the only place that would take me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Most of the students are like that too. Right. Yeah. right. I actually uh, went here though, and this is probably off topic, but it was big enough where like I got really good attention from all my professors. And like if you cared about your studies, like you could not all your peers did. So you could have like a really great experience here in the honors college is really good. Yep. I'm excited to see that the Arizona's become such a hub. It's a big blockchain hub now, too. Yep. Like the state is very friendly. They're having like possibly sandbox regulation for blockchain here. And I didn't realize that ASU was such like a thought leader in climate change. Yep. I, I didn't realize this was like kind of a unique place to be for that. It's a bit of a hidden gem here, hopefully not hidden for so long. There are some quite incredible thinking going on on the campus here and in the broader Phoenix metro as well. Yeah, it's exciting because everyone I was dying to get out when I was in high school here. But then all of a sudden I'm like, keep getting brought back for work and it's great. So... Geoengineering Jane Jr. Yeah, yeah uh, that, correct. Any final thoughts around some moral issues that we might be walking into here? No, I mean, I think it's great that you guys are having these kinds of explicit conversations so early on. The way that I have been trained to think about the governance issues around innovation is to see the social and political dimensions of quite technical decision making. And actually, that grew out of my policy experience in D.C., where I was working on really technical questions and realized, oh, wow, you know, you're trained to think of the science policy interface, if there even is one, as being about speaking truth to power. Like you do the right science. You tell the policymakers and it drives decisions. And I've perhaps that, that was a naive assumption I had, but I very quickly learned that that was not, in fact, how things worked. And so in that experience, I sort of learned like, oh, wow, you know, a lot of the kind of technical decision making that happens is itself quite political, has a lot of political implications. A lot of the decisions are driven by ideology and trying to think about innovation policy in light of some of those findings is part of what I think is so great about a place like SFIS. Yeah, what is that? You guys mentioned it, but I don't think we got into the it. School for the Future of Innovation in Society. Uh, is that here? That's, that's here. where we that's, are. That's where you, you are, are in sitting it. at You're the moment. You guys never it. told me? <laughs> <laughs> I've been in it the whole time? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. But for those of us who have an interest in science and technology policy from a kind of different perspective than the way that you're often trained to be a science and technology policy person outside of ASU. I think it's really wonderfully weird place in that regard. It really like, I think that the training here and the way that people approach problems here is actually much more empirically correct in terms of how the world <laughs> works. So for that reason, and a bunch of others, I think it's fascinating. So it's great that you guys are here and able to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah, personally, I want to say when people sort of bemoan that 
carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management doesn't sit at the same table. We're sitting at the same table. Yeah. It's a yeah. little table. <laughs> yeah. It's a small table. Yeah, yeah. We almost sat on the floor, actually. <laughs> yeah, we came close. So, Andrew, I'm going to put a crystal ball in your hands, and you're going to look into it and tell me something that you see in five and then ten years. Goodness me. Five years, I think we'll all be sitting around a similar table still, unfortunately, having arguments about hypotheticals rather than doing anything. You had the opportunity to change that, though. This is an Anori skyscraper, right, in Washington? <laughs> well, no, that would be good. Um, yeah, 10 years, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. And I don't know because there is so much ideology driving conversations here, which is inevitable at the end of the day. What I would hope is we see a lot more thought to how do we move fast? How are we more fleet-footed in seeing a whole raft of opportunities, whether it's actually removing carbon dioxide, whether it's solar radiation management, whether it's changing behaviors, whatever. I, mean, I know you guys are really focused on the carbon dioxide removal, but I actually genuinely think that we've got to have our portfolio of ways forward. Mm -hmm. But what I would love to see is far more pragmatism, far yeah. less posturing, far less hair pulling over hypotheticals, far more getting on the ground and doing things, trying things, learning early and fast from what works and what doesn't and moving forwards. That's my dream for 10 years time. Where do you find these people? I feel like I mostly know a lot of goofballs in the in like the environmental <laughs> circles. Everyone we talk to is just like very practical and sensible. Mm -hmm. Where do you dig these people up? And it seems like they're action oriented, which are the type of people that we like to associate oh, ourselves with. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that's pretty good. I think, I mean, I have more questions. Maybe we can take this off air and deprive our beautiful listeners of that. But <laughs> is, it, is it fair to, to wrap this up? Yeah, I think it's about time. I, you know, landed two hours ago and here we are. I feel like Phoenix has been very welcoming. So thanks for being the first stop on the tour. Thank you. It's the dry heat. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get stuck behind snowbirds when you, when you came? <laughs> I think so. You think so? Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Cheers.